and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm Alberto Ligi, your host from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we are talking with Ben Davis, who is the executive director of the Johnson & Johnson Foundation. And Johnson & Johnson, as probably many of you know, is one of the world's largest healthcare companies. So today we're going to be focusing on their work in um, frontline health workers, uh, particularly within the backdrop of COVID-19 and this uh, global crisis that we're all living through right now. So Ben, without further ado, welcome on to the Do One Better podcast. Thank you, Alberto. It's a real pleasure to, to be here. Great to have you on the show. Why don't we start by learning a little bit about the Johnson & Johnson Foundation? Absolutely. So... The Johnson Johnson Foundation has as its vision to um, really believing that everyone everywhere should have access to, to basic quality health services. And the foundation's role is really to help program um, the work that we do as Johnson and Johnson, and specifically in my role, which is to to shape that for the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region, uh, to work with a broad portfolio of partner organizations, mainly NGOs, so non-governmental organizations, who are at the forefront of um, community health and serving underserved populations within access to, to primary care services. So the foundation has existed in the EMEA region uh, since 2007 and mm -hmm. has a board of directors, which is constituted by the leaders of the Johnson Johnson uh, company in the EMEA region. And so it really creates a, a space, if you like, for community investment um, against our strategy. And really within that strategy, it's to help champion uh, the nurses and midwives and community health workers who are really at the heart of delivering care at that bridge right, between the community and, and primary care. Interestingly, the foundation is um, it is constituted under Scottish law. Now, okay. for many of the listeners, uh, if you know, Johnson Johnson is an extremely kind of diverse and uh, decentralized uh, company. And you know, as the foundation is situated within under Scottish law, uh, basically the reason for this was that. At the time, so nearly 20 years ago now, the, uh, a local community impact work was created in Scotland and one of our medical device businesses, Epicom, and created a trust, a corporate citizenship trust uh, for supporting the local community um, in, in and around uh, the, the plant in just outside of, of Edinburgh in, in Scotland. Now, as you know, our world has obviously become more globalized. The opportunity became larger in terms of using the uh, nucleus of a foundation to be able to um, support partner organizations more globally mm -hmm. and specifically across Africa, the Middle East, the rest of Europe. And so from a very small community based foundation in Scotland, uh, this foundation is, is now responsible for uh, programming um, with a lot of leading non-governmental organizations, such as Save the Children, UNICEF, the Aga Khan Foundation, across multiple 
multiple geographies. So we've seen an incredible growth and a, a strong connection into our business leaders, which I think is really important because we will never operate in a, in a vacuum to what Johnson Johnson does as a, as a company. But I think we've been able to create a very strong community based focus in supporting those mm. frontline health workers. Are you, uh, are you mainly a, uh, a grant maker? Are you an operating foundation? How do you, how do you aim to improve uh, the state of affairs on the ground? Yes, absolutely. We're, primarily, we are a grant making uh, organization. And um, this has also evolved over the years. And I think we're in the middle of a, a major transformation at the moment within where we belong in the, the J&J ecosystem within global community impact mm-hmm. is that we've transitioned because I think the uh, partnering with community-based organizations for J&J is something that goes back decades and decades. And we have very deep-rooted partners whom we whom we work with. And these have predominantly been very much around uh, grant-based uh, relationships. Yeah. And so that is very much still our, our bread and bread and butter uh, work, if you like. And, and as we're pivoting towards a new strategy, which is, which is very ambitious, and this is the global strategy within which the EMEA Foundation is fitting into, it's, it's to really champion, as mentioned, you know, frontline health workers. Um, and really set ourselves an aspiration for 2030 to to help reduce the health worker coverage gap because that is large, especially within the context of universal health coverage, is to help increase quality of care through creating a thriving uh, frontline health workforce. And encapsulating all of that is to help strengthen health systems. And mm-hmm. so we've globally... Um, allocated and designated $250 million, um, which we will uh, be using as a as catalytic funding mm-hmm. say, um, to work with our existing partners and, and new partners to, to really reach 1 million frontline health workers at that interjunction between community and primary care, and who in turn you know, within, again, the context of universal health coverage to reach 100 million uh, underserved people who don't have access mm-hmm. to date to primary health services and try to focus because I think even though 250 million sounds a lot, you know, to be able to affect health systems, um, we need to work with, with others, sure. uh, other funders, other conveners, other foundations to be able to really have any significant impact. But we do hope that by focusing in on on those targets and, and looking at 10 health systems where we can affect that change, that we really are setting ourselves up for a really exciting journey over the, over the next uh, 10 years. When you say 10 health systems, where... So at the moment, globally, what we're looking at is to uh, kind of organize ourselves around impact hubs. Mm-hmm. And um, we're doing that, uh, for example, if I take the EMEA region, and this is based on a number of different factors. We're looking at need. So the where there is a health worker coverage gap and there is a need for that access to, to care. We're also looking to see where where we can leverage the broader J&J 
ecosystem and where we have very close partner organizations already in existence on the ground. And so um, in East Africa, we have a very strong legacy of many, many years of, of programming. And so for us, where we've been able to really accelerate some of our work has been in, in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, and within our East Africa hub, Kenya is the, the lead country. And then as we will advance across these 10 years, we will be looking at programming in, in Tanzania, in Uganda, in Ethiopia, and Rwanda. We also have a very strong connection into South Africa for many, many years of programming. Mm-hmm. So that's another hub in its own right. In the Middle East, it's Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt, uh, so Middle East and North Africa. And then we're also looking to, obviously, this is within a global context, um, with India, China, Southeast Asia, North America, and within Latin America, very specifically looking at, at Brazil, Colombia, and, and Mexico. Mm. So I think what, one of the advantages of this is that we'll be able to exchange learnings, because I think, as you well know, any change that you're looking to make and any kind of effects on you know, the work that we're doing through social impact will be driven by by local context. Mm -hmm. History, politics, economics, that shapes, obviously, the local environment. Health systems look very different in many different uh, contexts and geographies. But I think by being able to work in very different environments, um, we'll be able to learn a lot. And, for example, interventions that we might be working with in a Kenya, uh, for example, around um, health systems change, um, training of, uh, for example, scholarships provided to nurses and midwives. We might be able to use those those models with our partners elsewhere uh, across the across the globe. So really trying to create communities of practice, um, so with great exchange and knowledge sharing, and looking at how we measure that that impact and. And obviously work with many other actors to be able to innovate and advocate for for change. Mm-hmm. So what are the um, what are some of the main things that you're that you're seeing on the ground? So what are the main bottlenecks or constraints, or is it a workforce issue? Is it when you're saying about front frontline health workers, are you trying to better equip those who are in existence right now? Are you trying to bring in new individuals into the workforce? Um, and from a from an individual, I guess, patient perspective. Universal healthcare is something that we we enjoy here in in, in Europe, uh, in many parts of Europe. It's not something that you would find in in many countries in the global south. Uh, how are you trying to change that reality on the ground so that that becomes uh, a possibility for for individuals living there? Yeah, it's both. It's both in terms of looking at the coverage gap uh, and then obviously looking at continued lifelong training and, and capacity building. Some of the statistics that, that we see, um, you know, from the WHO, um, is that there's a, a major coverage gap of 19 million frontline health workers to be able to provide even the basic coverage or universal health coverage. Now, of course, a lot of that is, is, you know, within low mid income settings, as you mentioned, global south. And I think if you again look at the, the issue of, of health disparity, so access to health, is 
incredible, not only among nations. So, for example, again, in the, in the EMEA region, if you look at GDP spend per capita, um, you can see that there are two countries within the EMEA region that are either at the bottom of that league table and at the top of that league table. So Madagascar has the lowest mm-hmm. spend per GDP per capita in the world. And Switzerland has, has the highest. And then across the region, you see many countries coming in at, at different levels um, of that GDP spend per, per capita. So you do have incredible health inequity or inequality between nations, but also within countries. Um, so, for example, in the UK, Save the Children uh, have noted that 25% of children in the United Kingdom actually live under the poverty line. So in terms of, you know, the access not only to, to health, but also to education, all of this is, of course, a big part of a, an, a broader ecosystem. Inequality is, is driving much of this. So what we try to do, as mentioned, against the, the variables that we use to identify the countries that we are, we are working with, um, or working in is, first of all, to understand what is the, the health worker coverage gap. How can we help support, you know, that there are more nurses, more midwives and community health workers who can really affect um, an increase in terms of delivery um, just by, you know, sheer numbers effectively uh, where those gaps are, are, are most evident. But that's not enough. I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the quality piece, and we cannot underestimate that enough quality of care, the quality of delivery of, of care is so important. Um, and so I think here is where we're looking to, you know, provide a, a very kind of strong base of interventions, firstly around training and education. Mm-hmm. So that could be, you know, pre-service training and in-service training to ensure that there are enough certified nurses, midwives. And in the case where community health workers are recognized in the health system, that there are more to provide more services. But then, of course, also in-service training, that there's continued development, that there is continued support for specialization. Um, and then, you know, looking across that spectrum, is is that enough? No, it's, it's not enough. I think, you know, how do you support frontline health workers with, with their leadership and, and management skills so that they can move into positions of... Um, of decision making, how they can affect and improve health systems. I think how can you connect and, and integrate frontline health workers? You can mm-hmm. see now with the rise of digital health, digital tools, you know, that's changing the landscape. Even more so now within the context of COVID-19, there's been an incredible acceleration of, of digital health. And then two areas which are probably very underfunded and under um and are represented in the lives and trajectories of frontline health workers. The first one being well-being and resilience. What mm-hmm. about, you know, the mental health and well-being of frontline health workers? You know, how do you ensure that there is a support mechanism for people working on the frontline day and night, you know, to be able to, to support not only, you know, the technical skills, but also the psychosocial support of you know, what is witnessed, even, you know, none, no more so than, than now in COVID-19. We, we see that, you know, on the, on, on 
daily news shows how um, doctors, nurses, um, community health workers are, are affected by by what they are are witnessing. Mm-hmm. So, in 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 more mature countries, um, obviously there is a good support system for that. But across many low and mid income countries, you know that is something that that can certainly be be enhanced. And then then finally also respect and, and recognition. So. Um, how can you know the voices of frontline health workers be be heard? How can, for example, professional associations be further um, enhanced and the capacity of those be built so that um, nurses, midwives have a, a strong voice and an association that they can lean upon, you know, for mm-hmm. their for their continued continued development. So effectively, all of this comes together looking at. Um, absolute numbers, increase those numbers, continued development of uh, uh, continued learning, uh, on-the-job learning, you know, looking through the tra- trajectory of a, a career. And I think looking at obviously working with many, many key organizations who can really affect that, that change, who mm. understand the local context, and of course relate very closely into Know, national ministries of, of health action plans. Now you are in an enviable position, I imagine, because not only do you have a balance sheet that enables you to make these grants and you know be able to allocate two hundred fifty million dollars to uh, to healthcare related uh, matters, but also you are one of the world's largest uh, healthcare companies. And I'm just curious, what sort of resources can you avail yourself of that are intrinsic within Johnson and Johnson that you could deploy on the ground. So putting aside the financials, how do you find it makes your life easier by having the likes of Johnson and Johnson um, on your side? What we, what we try to do is um, to be as systemic in, in our programming as, as possible and um, where we can leverage the additional resources of, of J&J to do that, um, it, we can have a greater greater impact so a couple couple of ways that we we do that um and probably one of the most powerful assets that that johnson johnson has is its people mm-hmm. um we have close to 130,000 employees globally um many of whom are based in countries where we have programming through the through the foundation so to give you an insight into how this could come together in a kind of ecosystemic way if you take nursing in East Africa. Uh, in East Africa, we have now nearly for 20 years, I think next year is our 20-year anniversary of working with the Aga Khan Foundation and the Aga Khan University uh, and School for Nursing and, and Midwifery. Wonderful. And through, through that period of time, we've been able to provide, through our grant-making, um, scholarships for part-time studies for um, advanced nursing uh, certificates for uh, obviously for nurses and, and midwives across Kenya, Uganda, and, and Tanzania. So that's a you know an, an ongoing relationship which is which is very close and very deep and affects change considerably through our partnership. Now five years ago, uh, we looked to um, uh, launch a new intervention. Um, which would leverage the skills and capabilities of J&J employees. Mm-hmm. It's called the secondment program. 
And um, so effectively what this is, is a skills-based volunteering opportunity, um, which would be an assignment of between four to six months with one of our key partner organizations. So in discussions with the Aga Khan Foundation, is that, yes, we had grant-making to provide scholarships to um, nurses and, and midwives through the AKU network. But we also realized that, um, to my earlier point around, how can we, you know, providing those certificates is simply not enough. How do you build an enabling environment around nursing, which could also help build respect and recognition for those nurses and midwives? And we agreed with the Aga uh, Khan Foundation that we would support um, the strengthening of nursing associations in uh, the three East African countries. Now, this was a blended approach between a grant and uh, skills-based volunteering. So actually, for we had uh, six secondees who followed each other in a, in a kind of a rotating basis who would be assigned to the Aga Khan Foundation um, on a four to six month basis. And effectively, their, their role was, um, you know, to, to help build the capacity of the um, nursing association. So that'd be looking at a business plan, looking at um, marketing, communication workshops, and, to re and governance, obviously, to help launch many of these uh, nursing associations. So, so that is, you know, a, a triple win, as we call it, because, mm. you know, there's a gain here for the partner organization in terms of the transferable skills that many J&Js could bring uh, into the equation, uh, either being a, you know, communication specialist or a lawyer or a business development uh, specialist, depending very much on the on the need at the time, a win for the um, for the individual. Incredible learning experience, working in a in a kind of low resource setting, having to be very agile, flexible, working with multiple, multiple stakeholders, and of course, a, you know, a win for the company because of the learning and the experience that uh, the employee has from that field experience is brought back into the company and kind of expands their leadership. Uh, scope. That's so, excellent. so that's that's one example of, of how we how we leverage the the the, the broader. No, that's absolutely game. excellent. I mean, life is uh, challenging enough in the best of times. Uh, now we have this pandemic. Uh, how how has that impacted your day to day and and the way you go about things? Because um, I can only imagine. I think, like everybody, it it. Um, it took us by by surprise in terms of the the uh, speed that the virus uh, was was spreading and and quickly we realized that this would impact all our programs you know in terms especially those programs that were community based especially those programs that um, um, were looking at training and facilitating you know community health workers who really go door to door right and you know who are out in the community you know simply that doesn't work in a lockdown mm. environment uh, at the same time you know as as you will will remember and as you can still see today as the as the virus is is spreading into different geographies is the the access to 
to um, protective equipment was a major concern and still remains a major major concern. And so I think as as one should do in in the state of of emergency, I think we took a very um, kind of agile and flexible approach to our partners' needs. And um, I think that is one of the one of our strengths, if I may say so myself, is that we have worked for so many years with many of our partner organizations and and as such, you know, the relationship is close and it's based on on a high degree of trust. And um and that is something that we really want to to cultivate and mm. to continue with. Um because there is transactional relationships and there is, you know, a belief in, in doing something together strongly to affect change. So we we listened very carefully and intently to to all of our partners to understand, for example, what the needs would be on on the ground. In some cases, programs were put on hold. So we had a major um, community health worker program taking place in Jordan with the International Rescue Committee. They put the program on hold, and at the same time, were able to develop a. Um, a remote delivery program through digital health. Mm. And so, you know, just as we were were pivoting and, and being um, agile, even more so partners on the ground, um, you know, who wanted to ensure the continuity of, of services, of, of health services. We also saw requests come in for a, a diversion of some of the existing funding towards an emergency response. So we saw that, for example, in Egypt, with Save the Children, a request, um, and we made that very clear up front that we would be able to allocate 25 to 30 percent of, you know, 2020, <clears throat> excuse me, grants would be made available for an emergency response in, in all of our geographies where, where there was a, a need to, to do so. Um, so, you know, a lot of pivoting, a lot of understanding what's going on on the ground, that flexibility. And then I think also, you know, to your earlier question around how can you leverage, you know, the greater um, kind of uh, uh, good of, of Johnson & Johnson through the foundation, um, business leaders here in the EMEA region were able to allocate an additional 5 million US dollars um, to, to the emergency response through the foundation. And uh, so we were able to go out very quickly through our partner network, for example, with the International Federation of the Red Cross, Red Crescent, mm-hmm. um, to be able to make quick um, support to their international appeal for Italy, Spain, France, and the United Kingdom, as the epicenter was in, in Europe. And then as the virus spread across the region here, uh, we were able to, to work with existing partners and some new partners in terms of um, support for three things, actually. One, PPE. So mm-hmm. the purchase of uh, protective uh, equipment. Um, secondly, the support for psychosocial support for frontline health workers so that there would be a support mechanism for doctors, nurses to be able to rely on um, some psychosocial support in the context they're working. And then thirdly, obviously working very closely with our government affairs colleagues, um, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of responding to national action plans 
because mm-hmm. again, you know, this was this is not a proprietary approach by by ourselves or, or or any company, but it's you know how do we turn up together as a global community and as a local community to support those in need, and I think that has been one of the most incredible learnings from the entire situation is that you know this is something where there's been great collaboration i've seen incredible collaboration within jnj but also among partner organizations among international organizations among ministries of health you know to really move beyond some of the impasse sometimes that you see sure. uh, and and really move towards or quick quick delivery and i think that's been impressive to see yeah, the agility after after the initial few weeks where where people were i think all of us were a little unsure what is the right thing to do and how do we do it so i think putting in place a bit of a framework and then working through that certainly helped us at the, at the sure and how did you get into all of this so i know you wear various hats because you're not just the executive director of the johnson and johnson foundation you're also senior leadership at johnson and johnson the company And I know your board is very much comprised of, of the who's who of the leadership of Johnson Johnson, the company. Tell me a little bit about your your trajectory, how you got to where you are. Yeah, I think um, right from an early age, I, I um, my my passport is British. Um, my uh, upbringing is in, in Norway, and I, I currently live in, in Belgium. And <laughs> Great. I think from so a bit bit of a bit of a mixture. There and and I think I've always been driven by a kind of um, social change. Um, my my parents actually moved from the UK to Norway uh, to to start a, a children's home, and so I grew up in a very values based and um, kind of social conscious environment around. You know, not everybody has equal access to opportunity, and I think that is probably always driven me from a personal perspective to seek out where I can make change in in the world, however big or however small that, that might be. And um, I've always been driven by a form of altruism, uh, I guess you could, could call it. And um, I think as I went through studying and, you know, an interesting kind of side note is that Norway is outside of the European Union and I had to work or be unemployed in the United Kingdom for three years before <laughs> I could before I could go and study back in those days they still provided tuition fees and maintenance grants that's <laughs> that's sure. how old I am um, and um, you know so that three-year period for me was very formative because I worked for a NGO in the Scottish Highlands working for special needs youth um, day training center and a residential center and it really put me on a path of as i got involved in the organization and the management of the organization a um a kind of a path that set me up you know through my university years and studying to really look at the interjection between um a kind of social contract between government society and business and You know, as I got into that and, and looking at the um, the different actors within that gray zone of the social contract, if you like, sure. it became clear to me that, you know, one of the biggest levers would be the private sector. And uh, and as such, I got 
involved uh, as a as an intern um, round about the year 2000, I would say, uh, with an organization called CSI Europe, uh, mm-hmm. which is a business network for corporate social responsibility. Having studied business, having studied international relations, um, this felt like the perfect kind of starting ground. You know, at the time, CSR was was relatively new. And I think just having created a space for myself as, a, as an intern and then growing in that organization, it became very clear to me that this is a path that I wanted to pursue. And, you know, now, nearly 20 years later, I think having gone through various functions, various sectors, you know, what has driven me is really that um, continued belief that, you know, where I work, I can make the change that I would hope I can do. I think um, the aspect of creating long-lasting partnerships, convening those partnerships, looking at innovative ways on business models of, uh, you know, looking at uh, challenges with, uh, with new fresh eyes, fresh tools, bringing unlikely actors together around the table, um, to find new solutions. And that has always really been a big part of, of driving my approach. And I have to say, you know, now eight years within J&J and the J&J Foundation, I think what is such a great ground for um, doing this type of work is, you know, the long-term perspective, right? Um, I used to work in food retail and there you know, there's probably a, a higher sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. And so things move quicker. What I think is great about the J&J model is that um, you need to build your alliances internally. You need to develop those deep-rooted partnerships externally. And I think by doing that, investing time up front, you can really, you know, invest for the future and create new models and new depths of of partnerships, um, which is very much what helps drive me and what makes me get up in the morning. And, and I mean, you certainly have an amazing platform uh, in Johnson & Johnson to be able to drive forward change. Are you feeling optimistic about the next 10 years as we uh, as we approach 2030 and the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals? How are you feeling about these things? I'm feeling optimistic and slightly concerned at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't. I think coming to where we are at the moment um, and looking at, at the situation around COVID nineteen, who knows what the new normal will, will look like? Um, so who knows in terms of when you run a foundation, you know that is so con- strongly connected to to one, you know, company? How do we ensure that we are? Um, safeguarded from a financial perspective to honor all our commitments into the into the future who knows what you know what's in the crystal ball around you know supporting health systems moving forward what about the economy how will how will that be affected so there is an element of concern around the broader landscape however within that there is an absolute moment of opportunity here and that's yeah. what makes me very optimistic and that moment of opportunity is really around I would say looking at new, if there was ever a time to look at new models of care and new models of delivery, it's now, mm-hmm. um, especially in and around supporting frontline health workers who are, you know, so critical 
to any health system and, and in many cases, you know, have not been at the forefront, you know, um, of, of the news, but have become so and become more recognized. So I think, you know, the moment is there for us to help support that and accelerate that and amplify that by bringing within this environment that, I would say, level of opportunity around collaborating more, collaborating deeper, better, in more meaningful ways. Um, and that gives me great, great hope, that level of collaboration. And also, you know, around the a sense of urgency, I would mm. say, you know, um, because I think it's amazing what so many actors were able to do over the last four or five months when your backs are up against the wall to some extent, right? And you have to be agile and you have to be flexible and you have to move things quickly. I think, you know, that mentality, you know, will be so important to reach the sustainable development goals because they are significant. Our planet depends upon it. Health systems depend upon it. Um, and I think we have a key role to play in, in helping to, to push a lot of that debate forward. So sure. that also makes me feel optimistic that, you know, we have a role to play and together with so many of our key partners and, and friends and colleagues and other foundations and companies to really turn up together. Well, that optimism is, is, is great. And, you know, now more than ever, frontline health workers, their importance is uh, front and center and undeniable. What's the, um, what's the key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I think working in health systems, sometimes it can become highly complex. And um, I guess all of us work within a systemic approach. Sometimes you need to break it down into its you know, components. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think we all, you know, anybody who's listening to, to this podcast, I think the reason you're listening is that you're a change maker in, in your organization. And not to lose the momentum, not to lose faith in what you believe in. Uh, some days are much tougher than, than others. And all of us, I'm sure, are working on systemic change. Every little bit counts. And I think building, you know, what you invest today in terms of relationships uh, with your colleagues, with your, um, with, with, uh, with your partners uh, will always come back and support you in, in the future. And I think, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, little wins are a big part of a big win. And mm. not forgetting that, I think, is, is such an important part of our own resilience as change makers is that celebrate the small wins because they will all help lead up to the bigger win as we move into the future. Very well said. Very well said indeed. Ben Davis, Executive Director of the Johnson & Johnson Foundation. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Alberto. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>